You are now entering the MXU podcast. No credentials required. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 33 of the MXU podcast. I'm Jeff Sandstrom, and I'm here today with my good friends, Lee Fields and Grace Royce. And we are coming to you in a weird season of COVID and all the sheltering in place and all that, but we're excited to be having a great conversation today with Josiah Gluck, who is one of the music mixers for Saturday Night Live. Uh, You may have heard Lee and me talk about our time with him back at the end of January, and uh, we were there in New York to listen to uh, some of what he was mixing for that week and get a little bit of sort of behind the scenes look into how their workflows work and their console and how he approaches things. And it was so great that we felt like you guys needed to hear from him because he's got just a wealth of knowledge and a ton of wisdom and insight to bring to you. So we know that you're going to love hearing from Josiah. 2020 marks Josiah's 28th year as a co-music engineer at Saturday Night Live. He's an Emmy Award winner and also a three-time Grammy nominee. He got his start at John Hopkins Baltimore, running a radio program there out of the school, and then right after graduation became a chief engineer at New York City's GRP Records. His experience spans almost three decades, so we hope you get a ton of value out of this week's MXU. Uh, Josiah, everyone out there is probably uh, uh, wondering the same thing we are. Uh, We're in uh, spring of 2020 here and right in the middle of the COVID pandemic. So how are you doing? How's your family doing? And how are your peers and colleagues doing? We are, uh, my immediate family, we're all good. Uh, I have twins who are about to turn the corner into 12 years old, a boy and a girl. And they're dealing with it, you know, as best they can with remote schooling and not seeing their friends. Uh, We're managing okay, getting out to the park, Riverside Park or Central Park here in New York on occasion. And um, on, you know, for my personal thing, I just got a hold of Melodyne and I'm really gonna learn that this summer. And several months ago, in a fit of whatever, I spent a lot of money on a fancy uh, Japanese sharpening stone for knives. So I'm going to learn how to use that this summer. <laughs> but oh, that's awesome. We're, we're, all, we're all okay. Uh, SNL, unfortunately, did lose one longtime person, Hal Wilner, uh, who was the fellow in charge of picking out music to play on their sketches, the underscore. And in fact, my first three years working on the show were with Hal. Wow. And um, a couple people connected with the show have lost family members. Uh, Other colleagues have either been through it to some degree, uh, spouse even more severely, but blessedly it hasn't really hit anyone I know in my, my immediate family very hard. Um, but it's a it's a weird time in this town. It definitely is. Um, the way I like to describe it is, is New York, if nothing else, is a testament to how to deal with crowded streets. New York is is the university of not overreacting when someone jostles you on the subway or steps on your toes and vice versa, because 
that's just what it is. Wow. And Josiah, you've been a New Yorker lifelong, uh, and you've been at SNL for a pretty long time. 28 so years, yeah. You've been there through market crashes, the death of uh, major American icons, even 9-11. How does the show's production respond to hard times? Does the show always go on? What's the current climate there at SNL amid COVID? Well, the current climate is that as I sit here now, I would be just about starting to do uh, getting sounds for whoever the band would be for our season finale. Notice this is Thursday, May 14th, and Saturday the 16th would be our final show of the season. Uh, needless to say, none of us are there. We did three shows, uh, the at-home shows, which were really good. I mean, the first one was kind of cobbled together. In some ways, it felt like the very, very first SNL which you've ever watched, the one hosted by George Carlin with Billy Preston and Janice Ian. It's like a technical nightmare that it's amazing it got on the air. The subsequent ones got much better. So our first at-home show was a little slapdash, but by the two weeks later with the next one, people had green screens, there were better mics. Uh, and so everything is adjusted for that. People have been recording things, they've been going, and we've been just making Dropbox glow hot red with all the files going back and forth, then the editors will spit out an AAF or an OMF. And myself, uh, Jay Vicari, who is the co-music mixer, the senior music mixer on the show, um, myself and at least two or three other guys who mix, work, do other mixing on the show, they're sending us these things, mixing them at home, and then dropboxing them back up. The whole show's being done in stereo uh, because someone like Jay has a nice home facility, but basically I'm not in any real position practically or what have you to, to mix and surround here at home. So we've, I think, technically all adopted and adapted very quickly and very well. Uh, we've all had to kind of figure it out as we go along. One of the biggest issues, of course, is making sure that we're all staying within broadcast spec, uh, which is what, minus, minus 24 LUFs uh, plus or minus 2 dB. Okay, so we've had a lot of people asking us questions about that line of sort of operational stuff over the last couple of months. Um, you know, some people have said, just make it as loud as you can and let the provider take care of squashing it if necessary. Others have said, no, you need to abide by this sort of guideline. So it's, it's interesting to hear from you that you guys, you know, because you do it all the time, you actually know what the standards are. Even what we're doing at home is ultimately going out over a network television, you know, a television network that broadcasts. How many of the things are your listeners doing for the web because the web to my understanding is a little more of a open west free-for-all i mean yeah. levels are everywhere and i know that some things like even uh when you export stuff for let's out of iMovie or whatnot it's well what is your ultimate destination is it itunes is it youtube is it facebook 
So I imagine a lot of that is kind of pre-dialed. Yeah, not a lot of our uh, listeners, they don't check the box in the export that says um, international syndication at NBC. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> So, so it is a it is a little different. It's YouTube and Facebook and you know their own website. So it is the wild, wild west, and in in a lot of ways, you're just competing for people's attention. So having it louder can be better in that scenario, so that it's not a I can't even hear this. So why would I engage with it? So uh, let's just throw the first question at you. So if you were just mixing for the web, uh, what would be your recommendations as far as what type of metering are you looking for and levels on your output? Well, I mean, I would look for healthy levels when I, again, I'm always mixing, looking at the Waves, this Waves plugin, the WLM1, um, for my, you know, for my average, my, my long-term, uh, my long-term reading. I would guess, and this is just spitballing here, that it would be a question of, making sure you're not going into the red. If you have some way of doing like a test record and playing it back and hearing what's happening, I mean, do a test record, put it up there, listen back and hop around to your competition and see where you are relative to everybody else. And I would imagine if a lot of stuff is YouTube or web-based, I'm, I'm thinking there's gotta be some sort of white paper tutorial that someone could look at or best practices. I mean, as far as specifically going to, uh, as I say, YouTube or web-based, my guess is it would be best to, first of all, just do best audio practices and look at your levels and make sure that it's not all looking like Christmas with all this green and red on top, and then work from there. Uh, we, we've had people who are asking questions based on their stuff not being loud enough or not seeming loud enough. So I think some of those guidelines have been really helpful. Yeah. And I would imagine some judicious compression on the way out. I mean, are these stereo uh, program material or is it, is it, are there, you know, church bands in the church, you know, that's a typical Sunday band or. Yeah, totally. It's typically always stereo and, and yeah, you're right. We're telling people, uh, definitely if you're, if you're used to mixing live sound and you're not using compression on your, your final outputs, doing broadcast is a bit different and we're not telling people here's a letter of the law. You always have to do it, but it is definitely something that everyone else does. So you should definitely consider that. So that's an, uh, maybe another question. So when you are processing your output, it's really easy to hear compression. I feel like on an iPhone or laptop speaker. Real, it really comes through. So what have you learned best uh, practices or uh, that type of thing on compressing your outputs? Well, at SNL, I will use an internal, uh, on our surround VCA output of the console, I will, in, I will put in an onboard limiter, uh, compressor limiter that uh, basically just sort of kisses the top a bit. And, and I use it to look at the levels. Uh, and sometimes I'll creep up beyond the minus 22, maybe minus 20, sometimes minus 19. 
I do occasionally get the rap on the knuckles from our production mixer down the hall, but I find that my compression helps it stand out a bit in the mix. The vocal, uh, the dialogue on the show typically is more compressed than the music, but the result of that is that sometimes the music feels like it doesn't hit as much. Mm. When I do the repeats, because the show is rebuilt a field and a frame at a time for syndication and for network reruns. And when we do that, we also mix through all sorts of elaborate busing. You get a 5.1 audience stem, music stem, dialogue stem, and effects in VT stem. Put them all together, they spell show. And at that stage of remixing, um, myself and one of our other uh, long form, uh, short form video mixers, fellow named Devin Emke, he and I will, uh, first of all, we'll work on the show simultaneously and we will do a peer review pass before we send it up to uh, video. And it's just listening back, you know, spot checking, like, okay, his acts all of a sudden don't sound louder or softer than mine, that there's sort of a spectral thing. And it's it's never a problem, but we just go through it anyway as an exercise. And there I am able to make the music have a little more punch. I will also play some games with levels because we have to do a, a, a loudness reading for each act. And an act, as far as we're concerned, also includes the music before we come back. Just a quick procedural thing. The house band always plays during the commercial breaks. Never really hear it. The only people that hear it are those various affiliates that don't sell the local advertising time. So in addition, they're just being the SNL bumper slide. They hear music underneath. And then about 30, 20 seconds before we come back, they wrap up the band. In, and I'm always recording that. In the repeat, the end of that band is now repositioned to hit right when the commercial ends. So when you watch the show, when you watch the show live, you will see silent bumper shot fade out back into the show. When you watch the repeat, it will have, the bumper slide will come on and you'll hear the band go, ding, 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 fade out, go in. So that music is repurposed. What I will do with that music in the repeat, if you're following along here, I will clip gain that down a little bit, like two, two and a half dB. And then I'll bump the music up a bit so that when I run the whole thing, because we calculate from that bumper, because that would be on the network at some point, I can get more out of this because I brought that down. I mean, I know it's a little chicanery, uh. but it does work. Um, and I don't think we've ever gotten yelled at by the network. There are times when if Jay is mixing and I'll be like, dude, watch your levels, you know, it gets a little hot. And there are times it just can't help but get hot. It's, that's just what it is. But again, I think compression on the output, listening to what it sounds like, and comparing yourself to others in the field. And I'll, I'll tell you this other story. Uh, many moons ago when I worked at GRP Records, they say when you wanted to, you know, fill out the track sheet, you had to take the torch off of one side of the cave wall and walk it over to the other. That's how long ago it was. <laughs> but um, 
we released some of our first CDs, and it was like, these things are low in level. Jeez. So my boss Larry called up this fellow named Jack Renner, who was the engineer for Telarc. And they did these incredible digital recordings. And he's like, Jack, it's Larry Wilson. So, so why are your CDs so much louder than anybody else's? And he's like, they are? I don't, I don't know. I don't listen to anyone else's. It's like, that, thank you, Jack. Bye. You know? <laughs> Basically, what was happening is because some of the first things we did were older analog masters where you dutifully took your 1K tone, put it at zero on your analog playback deck, and then lined that zero up with zero on the old 1610, not even 1630, the old 1610 system. And a friend of mine, we used to refer to them, if you know your analog stuff, as 185 Nano Weber uh, CDs, because everyone was faithfully adhering to the zero. But because there was just so much more headroom on the digital, you could take that tone and put it at plus six on the input meters of your 1610 and still be fine, and thereby get a louder CD. So that was sort of a Wild West thing as, as well. Um, you know, and the other crazy thing about compression on levels like that, and it's a thing I always have trouble trying to explain and deal with myself, is you have, you know, the actual electrical level and the apparent level. Uh, here's a good one, if I'm allowed to just rattle off oh, stories. Oh, yeah, please. So... I don't know if you know this uh, Nashville artist, Margot Price, is she's just a doll. You need to get your mind right about her. And so she comes on the show, and it's her first time on a big TV show, and all of us were just like this protective hive. I don't know how to describe it. We're all like, we got you, honey. Don't worry. She came in to listen. She was thrilled. She even sent me an MP3 of a song called Josiah that she had written and all of that. It was just delightful. <laughs> So that's on a Saturday. Everything's groovy. And then Sunday, my phone starts blowing up with emails and texts. The mix is all wrong on the air. I'm like, what are you guys talking about? Someone says they can't hear a slide guitar. I'm like, what do you mean they can't hear a slide guitar? We heard it fine on the in the control room. What are you talking about? Well, I'm looking at the phone and I just call it up because it's a it's a Rolling Stone article that has a link to the NBC.com video. I look at it, I'm like, I can't really tell anything. Let me plug in my headphones into my phone, and instantly I don't hear the slide guitar, because the slide guitar is camera right, and it's mostly panned right, because they always pan for what's on stage. Well, somebody at NBC had strapped our show left channel across both. So the whole show was going out mono to the world on NBC.com with just the left channel. The commercials, ironically, were playing in stereo or <laughs> folded down. So I wasn't even getting like a duff fold down. It was just the left side of, I guess, the fold down. And I said, you know what? Let me check something out here. And I went back a week to the previous week's show, which was Gwen Stefani, which I was also proud of that mix. Same thing. The whole show's in mono. So when you say you'd be surprised, oh, yeah. You know, I've <laughs> been in a studio. I once said to someone, sorry, these are, monitors are out of phase. 
He goes, well, in what way out of phase? I'm like, you know, out of phase, out of phase. (laughs) (laughs) And the big problem I had was, and they said, well, we can flip. I said, yeah, but we were listening E to E through a video deck on something. I said, I don't know where this phase flip is. We could fix it at the speakers, but what if it's a problem on how your XLRs are wired going into your umatic deck? I don't know that. And again, if the art history major can figure it out. (laughs) That's amazing. Well, I know that you have a ton of stories about just about any topic, um, but I do want to talk some about what we heard when we were there with you, because um, it was honestly some of the best live mixes I've ever heard. And so um, w- when we were there, Luke Combs was the artist for that week. Um, and and I ended up watching the show live after we met you, which was, you know, a couple days later. And, you know, the mix was, was awesome. Uh, you played us some stuff from the, um, from the archives. So just, Tell us a couple stories about some of your favorite moments, like when you're most proud as a mixer. You know, I know the Coldplay moment and the Miley Cyrus on the 40th anniversary and those things that we heard were stunning. So just give our give our listeners a couple a little insight into that. One of the more. uh, You know, just difficult on many levels. Was the Christmas show uh, a few years ago. Paul McCartney was the music, Martin Short was hosting. But that Saturday was the day after the Sandy Hook school shooting in the Newtown School in Connecticut. And it was just a crazy time. And on Thursday, we had set up for Paul to do three songs. And the third of his three songs was his Christmas song, having an absolutely wonderful Christmas time. It's his contribution to the Christmas canon. Anyhow, (laughs) they had kids down front of the band in like choir robes singing. And we had gotten some Shep's Colette microphones with the little thin tubes on. Mm-hmm. to try to pick up the kids. But of course, the director and Paul want them down front, on the floor in front of the band. I mean, you drop a newborn chinchilla onto a down comforter and it's going to be louder than those kids. <laughs> I mean, there's just no way to deal with it. So what we did was we got eight kids as ringers and they went into our announce booth under the stairs and... Now I'm using an AT uh, Stereo 4050 mic, which is brilliant. But I didn't want to have what I call the starfish mix, which is just like the one element like this on your face, because it would be just so obvious. So I set up two 87s and a little XY setup and put the kids around it, and we blended them in with a little bit of the live mics. Sounded great. Saturday morning, so that's on a Thursday. Friday, that horrible event happens. On Saturday, I come in. And my day typically starts or anywhere between like 9.30 and 11. The band starts rehearsing at 11. And one of the A2s, our main A2 on the floor, says to me, I hear we're going to start with the kids' choir doing something this evening. You don't know what it is, but they're going to do it. So the eight kids that they had on camera, plus the eight ringers, I might have the numbers slightly wrong, 
um, all were at home base, put out there uh, singing Silent Night. I took the chef's microphones that we had and I did two sort of on a low banquet stand with a weight so they wouldn't topple. So two looking at one half, two looking camera left, two looking camera right, pan them left, right, and away you go. So this is now 6.30 in the evening. We're on the air at five hours later. And I'm really only hearing this and seeing this for the first time. Then they're in some lovely reverb, so it sounds nice. The kids finish, we fade to black quickly, we come back up quickly, and the kids say, live from New York, it's Saturday night. Okay. The trick is, they're in front of the house band, which is about to go full tilt boogie. So I had my assistant working with me. So when we fade to black, he went over to my uh, returns, which are on a bank of the Lavo MC266 console. So they're on a bank down there. So he just lowered the returns. You can even bother to just, just bring the return faders down to like half. So there's something, but it doesn't sound like they're just saying this in Grand Central. And I have a snapshot ready to go so that when they say live from New York, I fire the snapshot and the band opens up. The other trick was is that the fader where I had the VCA, where I had the band, uh, the choir was on the flip layer of where Lenny Pickett is, our lead sax player. So it was basically live from New York, it's Saturday night, fade out and continue to go. But the trick is I had to make sure that I snap isolated that VCA with the choir because otherwise it would have been live from New York. As soon as I switched, that fader would have dropped. So to do that and to sort of think that through to me was just you bring all your Starfleet ninja, uh, you know, Jedi training to bear and figure out how is this going to work for me? How am I going to make this happen? And that's the sort of stuff that I absolutely adore is trying to, you know, MacGyver and MacGruber your way out of these various issues. So doing that and I rehearsed because I recorded it. I rehearsed it a couple of times. We did it at dress rehearsal and then we did it on the air. And I remember that night because there was the monologue had music in it and Paul did three songs on air. Plus he did stuff at the good nights. And I, except for one sketch, I think there was live music in some form or another in every act of that 90 minute show. So that was an exceptionally proud thing. Um, wow. Working uh, and basically doing that same kind of maneuver the week after the presidential, the week of the presidential election, when Dave Chappelle hosted and Leonard Cohen had died that week, I think that Friday or Thursday, and Kate McKinnon sang Hallelujah, dressed as Hillary Clinton, seated at a piano, and again, live from New York, and she says, I'm not giving up and neither should you, and live from New York, and in, in all of that is when I'm making the switch. So the house band opens up around her and then get that out. Um, and we had a lav on her, you know, sort of a, a light colored lav on this white uh, like pantsuit she was wearing as a costume. 
And someone had said, what mic are we putting on her? Where do you want to bring the stand in? I'm like, we're not putting a mic in front of her face. This is, it's not a music thing. It's really an acting performance thing. So, and I was sitting with some friends after that and someone was saying to me, how did you get the love to sound so good? And so like I said, he EQ'd it. What do you think he did, you know? Um, yeah, that's another thing about just all the... Doing live, the EQ is very much... For mixing for me in general, but also doing live EQ, is a very subtractive process. You take away that which is in the way. Totally. Um, you know, the way I describe it is that old joke about... How do you carve an elephant out of a block of marble? You get a block of marble and you take away everything that doesn't look like an elephant. And so in this case, if something is woofy, I'm not adding top. I'm taking woof away. I'm taking low mids out. I get subjectively brighter. And I'm also not running through. The lava is one thing, but other more janky boards, you know. I don't want to necessarily run through what I call the Play-Doh fun factory of plugins and EQ if I don't have to. And live music, especially, and dialogue and clearing up PA and everything else is really about making space for things. It's like if you stand back from a really complex mosaic and it all comes together very nicely, and then as you get closer, you realize, oh, this piece was cut like this, and this piece fits like this, and they sort of stay out of each other's way. And when you pull back from them, they fit together. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's kind of how I look at it. That it's all, everyone is jostling for position sonically as far as whether or not it be frequency or amplitude. And you make that all kind of work together. And also this all may sound like a bunch of platitudes from the mountaintop. It's experience. You, this is stuff that I have learned. Josiah, I think a lot of our listeners right now are mixing in the box and going straight to the web. Uh, as this COVID thing transitions back into regular church life, they're probably not going to get out of the broadcast part of this and, and still be putting a lot of their material up every week. I think your setup in particular uh translates to what we'll be faced with because you also have a small PA in that sound stage. And sometimes, you know, an A-level artist is probably on in-ears, but sometimes you probably do have wedges. How often do you feel like you're battling those room elements in your broadcast mix? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, there are times when it's a battle. I'm, I'm usually amazed at the number of people who don't come in with in-ears anymore because it's it really just makes everybody's life so much better to just take that SPL down on stage. Um, typically we get, it's, it's usually when people want side fills, which we, we refer to as Texas headphones, uh, you know, just blasting yeah. at us. Um, the show, the PA for the show is really extensive and it's beautifully time aligned for everything because the PA mix position is all the way off in one corner of the, in the balcony of the studio. Um, for those people who watch the show, there's typically a shot when the person and the host comes out and they walk down front and center, and then there's a shot 
looking from their right shoulder up towards the studio. And in that back corner, up in that, where there's the crook as the audience comes around, in that upper left-hand corner of their screen is where music and dialogue are mixed, is the PA mix position. So they are constantly battling, as far as dialogue is concerned, making sure that it's not too tanky for our broadcast mixer. And then you have the writers yelling that people aren't laughing, therefore it must not be loud enough. It's like, okay, fine, that's your diagnosis. But the other thing is, with music, it runs at like rock concert levels in there. It's really loud. And so sometimes we have that coming back at us, like during mic check and sound check. Uh, we have to be very careful that we're not getting fooled by the sound of the room coming back at us. And mind you, listening to the room without 300 audience members in it too. And sets, that's going to change everything up. Also, the music set is small. Oh, it looks so big. Everyone comes into the room. The first thing they say is, it looks so much bigger on TV. And it does, but it's also an amazingly large space for what it is. And if you can find me another column-free, two-story production space with a grid in Midtown Manhattan, in the middle of Midtown, you go ahead. You know. They were all you know, originally radio studios. Um, so the main thing that we deal with is just this balance of SPL and what can be heard. I remember the very first time I went to the show was in 1981 or 82. And believe it or else, I was working at a recording studio right out of college. And our main client on a lot of Friday nights was the SNL house band. So some of these people I've known for over 30 years. It's crazy. Um, but I remember that the music act was Charlie Daniels and Devil Went Down to Georgia was huge. Big hit back then. And he gets out there to perform it, and I couldn't hear the vocal. And I remember thinking, like, well, I guess they can hear it on the air, and there must be a reason I'm not hearing it too well in the house. Why that was, I don't know. But there's always that constant struggle about what the house wants to hear, what broadcast wants to hear. Um, sometimes for what way we will work with uh, front of house is let's say there's an effect that has to go on a vocal. Like there's a delay word, 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 word kind of thing. Well, I will set that up with a delay throw and a plugin. And typically what I will do is I will record the output of that plugin on a track as well, just so I have that baked into my music multi-track if I'm gonna rebuild it for whatever reason. And I'll also typically tell the front of house guy from the band who's kibitzing me and telling me louder, softer, wetter, drier, whatever kind of thing. And it'll be like, oh, you are out with this band 763 nights a year. You know what's going on? Fine. There's your fader. It's live TV. Live TV. Please don't screw up. You know, I'll throw the please. <laughs> but I can also, because the show has this massive Maddie router, I can take the output of that effect put it on my router 
and tell front of house, hey, pick that up, park it at zero, and it'll just come in and out. We had this band, uh, the, the Korean uh, boy band, BTS, and they give me lyric sheet, and I'm trying to follow along to chase these guys, and I'm like, oh, they're really not singing English. Okay, making me a boy with love is the only thing that's corresponding to what I'm seeing and hearing. Everything else is off the table. <laughs> and their producer and engineer are there. And I'm like, gentlemen, here's what's going to happen. And I had this gal who was an interpreter. Sat them there. He rode the vocals. The engineer and producer rode the vocals. And a mono stem of that, uh, post-fader, post-EQ, post-what-have-you, was going to front a house. So he just had to park that, and he didn't have to worry about what who's going to say what at what time. <clears throat> and that worked out really well. The funny thing is, I will say off the record, was that when these guys, we get to the end of a pass or something, and they're talking back and forth. And when you're dealing with the romance language, you can tell if someone's pissed off or not. But you just couldn't get any read of anything. And these guys are talking back, they're going on and on. And I say to the interpreter, it's like, is everything okay? And they turn to me and they go, it's good, good. And I'm like, these guys have just been spending 20 minutes translating Beowulf into Yiddish as far as I'm concerned. And all they said was, <laughs> it's good. Okay. <laughs> you know. so, uh, I am curious about your, your Lavo console. That's not a very popular console in our world. Uh that's like 144 inputs and Maddie patched? Well, yes, that is. I currently have, there's 144 mic lines just for music in the show. We have 50 dedicated to the house band and then the rest. And oh, I was going to say if it was you know yesterday, I wouldn't have done the math because I don't do math on prime number days. But anyway, um, <laughs> you know. 50 plus whatever, you know, to get our, our 144. Uh, we used to just have it like 48 and 48 because we had a 96 input console. But once we got to the Lavo, we flopped it so that the house band starts at one, not at 51 or whatever. It's because that the house, the guest band can always scale up. So yeah, we will bring in, so we will dedicate the larger number to the guest band Sometimes they bring in their own monitor boards, which is crazy. I can understand that because that's so they can switch between songs. They get everything in their ears how they want it. Coldplay does that. Not only does Coldplay bring that in, they will send us stems off stage. I got if you watch the video with their thing, I'll send you the links. They have one of the brand new reissued Neumann U67s, my favorite mic, hanging over the drum kit. They have a mono thing. But they process it and send it out. They have all these processed stems. I'm still mixing. I'm still doing vocals and guitars and other stuff. But a lot of stuff they do off stage. They're Coldplay. They know what they're doing. Their fellow Rick Simpson, genius. He knows what he's doing. And he's a joy to work with at the console. There are a lot of guys who are sort of friends of the show, as we call them, who've been in quite often. What does that process look like with the band's engineer and you in terms of how you need to form a relationship, how you establish trust, how they, you know, I know some people are basically allowed to do more than others, um, but that is a process, right? So 
It is. I mean, there are some people I've worked with before. Um, I think usually the way the trust works is just starting to build from the ground up. Uh, The very first job I had out of school working in a studio, out of college, and I'm still in touch with the chief engineer studio owner, and he taught me something, which is the mantra I teach everyone, which is you are one-third technician, one-third musician, one-third politician when you sit there behind the board. And, you know, an artist will come back, whoever it is, they'll come back. And I've done this numerous times my assistants are like, they'll come back and they'll listen. Grace, you're listening back to something and you'll say, wow, that's nice. That sounds, hey, that sounds really good, man. That sounds really good. I'll be like, look, that attitude... Oh, you liked it. I'm sorry. Never mind. Never mind. Sorry. You liked it. You liked it. It's okay. And it's a bit of an icebreaker. It's funny. It's haha. But I know that it's people are genuinely surprised when they come into our room. We have this MK51 system with two massive subwoofers, and we spoil people. We also are one of the very few shows, if not the only show, that has a tremendous luxury of time f- devoted to music. Thursdays, we get in with the input list. I'll typically go ask. I'll have the input list. I'll go check in on this floor with my two music A2s, the monitor guy who typically advances the bands and say, is anything changed? Uh, and we'll say, yes. You know, Moose Call, Ocarina, Zither, they're all on the bus. They're not happening. They're like, they're still on the tour bus. It's on the list, but we're not using them. One of the guys who now is our front of house mixer, but if he was on the floor, I would say, is there anything I need to know? And he would always say like, well, yeah, but I really don't have the time to teach it to you now. But anyhow. (laughs) um, So we get all of that set up and it's really just a question of listening to the music. We'll get a thing from the music department as to what this is and how effects heavy it is or isn't. And you can just sometimes look at something and just know what it's going to be. If you see a band that you've never heard of before, and it's guitar, two guitars, bass, drums, maybe a B3, and a lead singer who is or is not playing guitar, and maybe the bass player and the second guitar player are singing backgrounds, you know what to do with that. Um, and also the picture dictates a lot of where the mix is going to be, and if it's solo, you know, you sort of ride that a bit. You get other more involved bands like Arcade Fire or Bon Iver. Uh, that was quite the uh, that was quite the thing to put together. Um, but working in conjunction with their people, it works great. And you just sort of build it up. But the trust thing is just I try to keep it really light. I try to keep it fun. And as I said, with the luxury of time, we do that on Thursday morning. Because the music is a standing set. It's only been Wednesday evening, the night before. And we're really only in the studio Thursday, Friday, Saturday. What I call the Chuck Yeager learning curve. Very steep to 11.30. And then you jump out of the plane. And hopefully by 1 a.m. you've pulled the ripcord and you're fine. Um, (laughs) Hopefully. Hopefully. So on Thursday, they're just starting to bring in some basic set pieces or some flats or tape on the floor just so they can block cameras and know what's going to happen. But music is already a known entity with Q 
camera angles and lighting and a lot of other people now bring in lights and set pieces and green screens and I'm not a fan of that because what happens is our sound checks turn into tech run-throughs and we have to sort of piggyback on all of that. But that's another harumph moment for another time. But <laughs> What's the RF uh, situation like in your building? Do you use any tools to isolate? Yes. RF is enormo. Um, 24 channels of RF in production. RF music stuff, our music stuff. RF communications for audio, camera, lights, utilities. It's insane. And we're just down the hall from uh, Studio 8G, which is Seth Meyers, which has its own complement of RF assignments. And we're a floor and a half above Jimmy Fallon. And we're across the street from Radio City. And thankfully, you know, we don't bang into each other. But as you know, the spectrum has gotten exceptionally tight. We have these new Shure mic systems, which I think have been working pretty well for us. Um, this, we ourselves, you, the show, uh, the music end of things, is very heavily Audio-Technica. We've used their mics for a long time. Uh, but yeah, the RF situation is very tricky. And when we know what's coming in with RF, we have to give it to our RF gurus in the building and say, what can they use? What can't they use? And you know, for a lot of the A2s out there, they have to learn how to use these mics and to set receivers and set transmitters and gain structure and all of that. You know, I used to describe it as, I'm sure 60, yeah, 60, 65 years ago in that building, maintenance was, this isn't working. Someone comes from the de lower depths with a big box, opens up the tubes. Okay, this tube isn't glowing here. What number is that? Put it in, it's fine. You fast forward about 30 some years and maintenance is slowly becoming, you know, trash the preference file and start over. And now a maintenance engineer is an IT guru. You have to know everything about IP and switches and all of that. It's kind of out of my wheelhouse. Um, I know some things, but again, I'm always like, oh, art history major. <laughs> Josiah, can you talk about as much as you can uh, freely? You know, some of this stuff may be like hush hush, but when things don't go right and you're on live TV and like the Super Bowl, you can't hear the vocal, and then all the keyboard warriors on the internet have their opinions as to whose fault that was, or someone gets busted lip singing on on national television. Uh, what happens? Um, well, we had that, you know, notorious incident with Ashley Simpson, which I will say was on them, not us. Um, although the amount of emails and texts, which were effectively a variation on, dude, do you still have a job? It's like, yes, I still have a job. So yeah, things happen. I mean, it's live TV. Uh, I'm amazed that more stuff doesn't happen. Like a few years ago, Adele on the Grammys, something went horribly wrong. A mic that had been taped into the piano fell down and was on the strings. I heard that and I'm like, I, I know exactly what has happened. I know the yeah. guys on the other end of the mics who are desperately trying to figure this out. 
I don't believe that there was a module that they could have flipped to. It was just the mics. Yeah. 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 These are decisions that are made. There's a difference between, I hesitate to go so deep as to call it an act of God, but, you know, there's things happen and then there's just carelessness or bad decisions, you know? That was that. On the Ashley Simpson thing, they played the wrong backup track. And she got caught. She had had a voice problem, and her camp said she's going to lip sync. And it's like, okay, this decision is made between dress and air. What are you going to do? Yeah. First song went fine. Second song, oops. And also Mm -hmm. in the day and age of the internet, um, you know, it's old enough to have been Usenet groups or whatnot. People, it was just the talk of the town before it even ran in other time zones. Because, you know, now the show is live to every time zone. So similarly, like, you know, there was issues a couple Super Bowls ago, and those were all Grace's fault. Just kidding, Grace. Um, but, you know, they're mixing in 5-1, and people at home were like, the the vocal's not there at all. And then I'm watching, and I'm going, I, it sounds great here. So stuff's happening downstream after the network hits go that's completely out of your control. Yeah, I mean, my somewhat politely cleaned up mantra is that 5.1 audio gives the home user 5.1 opportunities to completely screw up my mix. (laughs) And we have all been in someone's home where they have a couple of speakers on the floor. Chances are those speakers actually don't even have, they have RCA plugs plugging in the back off their whatever janky thing they have. One is turned this way, it's got a plant on it. This one's over here, it's got a lava lamp. And they don't care. We can look at this setup and hear this, the cries of a million souls crying out inside the dimensions of our skull, because how can you possibly listen to this? They don't care. It doesn't matter. So am I mixing to have, you know, a handful of engineers be like, whoa, or do I just want people to be like, yeah, that's cool. That's great. Um, when we mix the show and surround, it's sort of like a proscenium experience. That is, things pull out a little bit around you, but I'm not making mixes that have someone go like, oh, what was that? You know, something coming from behind you somewhere. Because if they don't have that set up properly, they're going to miss it. Right. You don't want people to miss the moose call and the ocarina. I mean, it's... And the zither, yes. Yeah. The other thing is that we used to do a fair amount of center channel vocal. And uh, my late boss, a gentleman named Stacy Foster, who was the technical consultant and then coordinating producer for the show, uh, passed away sadly just around Christmas time last year. And he was the one who brought me into SNL and a lot of people, sort of our technical guru, um, technology evangelist, heat shield, what have you, really great fellow. And we would have long, you know, Talmudic debates about how we're mixing things. And one of the discussions was, well, with center channel vocal, you can really localize things. If you're sitting off to one side in a stereo only setup, well, you're just going to hear the vocal come out of the left side or the right side, because you're listening to a phantom chant, a phantom vocal. But if it's still coming out of the center, and you're off to the side, you're still kind of, kind of localize it there. 
Part of the issue is that it's very tricky to get the stereo fold down right. And typically we would listen when I'm mixing in surround at SNL, I am first really listening in stereo and then seeing how it folds out in it unfurls into 5-1, and then I will decide which things get pulled back a little bit. Uh, if someone's doing a, an effect with a vocal, then maybe I'll play around with, okay, on that return, there'll be some reverb that is directed more back there. So it's echo, and that sort of blossoms. Seven, eight people might hear it correctly. Maybe 8,000 or 80,000 hear it correctly. And they might be like, oh, cool. And that's fine. But you're making sure that it sounds good in stereo first. You have Before to. you do all that stuff. I mean, yeah, and back good. in the day, there used to be, you'd always check it in mono because there might be that guy two floors down, as I say, in the parking garage with his black and white TV with the tinfoil rabbit ears. And you want to make sure it sounds okay in mono. Uh, I will listen to things in mono if someone wants, but... It's not something I do all the time. And frankly, so many people now are listening like this, you know, on the subway on Monday morning. Yeah, on their cell phones. Yeah. So we make it the best it can sound leaving the building. Okay, so speaking of that, that Coldplay mix that you played for us, it is, I'm not just blowing smoke here, that is the best broadcast mix I've ever heard. <laughs> and And you're right, your room is stunning. Those monitors the way the room sounds, it's unbelievable. It really is. But the reverb on Chris Martin's vocal is, it's one of my favorite things I've ever heard. So I have two questions. First, what was it? And the second one is the soundstage there, like you said, is small. And that reverb doesn't necessarily sound like the space that you see him singing in. Now, I'm personally okay with that. I just like the vocal to sound spectacular, nice, pretty reverb. I I don't have trouble with the disconnection with what the reverb sounds like. I don't, but some people do. And someone texts me, uh, a good friend of mine, Matt, and he's like, "Hey, these churches that are now filming in these small spaces, tell them to back off the uh, four second reverbs." And I thought, yeah, may, I mean, maybe. And then I sent him the video of the, because it's on YouTube, this Coldplay mix. Yeah. And I'm like, but check this out. And it's stunning. Well, first of all, Chris, you know, Coldplay has a lot of reverb on their vocals. And I'm working in conjunction with their engineer and my co-producer on their albums, Rick. So he, he really knows what he wants. And I think Chris's voice is one of those things that does very well when it gets, it hits the reverb and that little bit of repetitive delay. Um, I've never had a problem with uh, the supposed disconnect between the space and that because, you know, when someone says, oh, such and such is a great record or this is a wonderful recording artist, there is an art to making a recording. And so much of that is sound that has been manipulated. And a lot of things conform to, like the way you hear drums, for example. It's what I call an oral aesthetic that we kind of all agree upon. This is what these things typically sound like. If you were to listen to that completely dry, it would sound terrible. If you listen to the record, it would sound completely dry. 
So there is this art art form of putting all of this together. And these artists are also selling a record. And they want people to have it sound pretty much like it. We've had things where people come on and provide us with the mix from off stage completely. They're taking everything off stage. We did that with The Weeknd and with Bruno Mars. It was like, here's a stereo mix. Take it or leave it. That's what they want. They want that degree of control. I don't always agree with it, but these are decisions that are made above my pay grade. They're in geosynchronous orbit above my pay grade. <laughs> um, if you've been doing this enough for personal taste, you sort of know, like your friend with the four-second reverb, unless there's a very specific reason, it's, yeah, it's probably a little long. As we like to say, someone will go, what are they, singing in the well? Why is it so wet? You know, take it yeah. back a little bit. Um, as you can imagine, between New York and adjacent New Jersey, just the uh, the vibe, the attitude, the uh, the overflowing swear jar, if there was one, you know. <laughs> yeah. You can well imagine. Um, it's like that at church, too. I have no doubt. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, I will say just parenthetically, it's, sometimes a tremendous amount of fun. I always like to say that I have my children. I mean, I'm 61 and my kids are going to be 12. So just don't do the math. It's just bad math. But I have my <laughs> children to keep me young and my buddies at SNL to keep me immature. And it's a really nice balance. It works really well. Um, and we've all been doing this a long time with each other. So we kind of, we've seen all the plays in the playbook. Uh, as I said, I have a twin brother. He works for Disney. He's director of library restoration and preservation. And as his boss likes to say, there are certain people, you just have tribal knowledge after a while. You've just hmm. been there enough. You've seen enough. You know enough. So that when this unique combination of column whatever of issue or problem or how do you figure this out you know what to do you know what to roll with it and i think for anybody who's doing any sort of mixing or any especially if you're doing any sort of technical support of any art form or whatnot there's that just absolutely perfect moment when you say this isn't working right or this doesn't sound good this doesn't look right but i know what the problem is and i know how to fix it when you have that ability to pull that plane up out of the stall. And mm. even if it's just a cat's whisker away from the mountain, but you know what to do. And you also have that sort of inner glow of like, yeah, well, I'm sorry, but my experience tells me, I don't want to apologize for it, but you can say, look, this is what we're going to have to do. Chris Martin, for example, wanted to have thought, well, maybe a boom mic can follow me while I'm singing. It's like, no, it can't. But we were like, let him do it. And when he hears the feedback problem, and I stood there and I spoke to him and I said, look, maybe we could do a thing with a mic or whatnot. And very sweet, really nice guy, was very receptive to what I had to say. And he's got this plummy accent and these blue eyes. And I just wanted to go like, excuse me, girls, I get it. Okay. But anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so when you see him come out from under the bleachers there, Grace, these guys are, you have to find it. I can try to send you the, the thing for it. 
he's got a Serrati t-shirt on, which I'm sure was a $700 Serrati t-shirt. And he had a mic taped under him here. And he sang it. And we put like a little more reverb on that because there's a video that they had released of the thing done all on iPhones and it had this kind of ambient start to it. So Rick said he wanted to have something like that. Like, okay. So we did that. And then he hands the mic off to someone. What I'm really proud of with that is the shift in dynamics from the opening to when the band comes in and you don't necessarily hear all of a sudden like a, all this compression takeover. But there's this dynamic, but it still has impact. And, you know, and the way he sang it and the way the band played, we got really lucky. And not that they screwed it up, but we've worked with other bands where we'll do the playback of our multi-track. So we have, if you will, uh, infinite number of sound checks. So we can just play it back. Everything's on the monitor side. There's no EQ, no compression, no gating, no nothing being recorded. It's just mic to Pro Tools. And then these guys will come in and they'll tweak this snare theme. Well, what about that? And I finally had to say to this one band, this big band, I'm not going to say their name, but I was like, guys, this is the sound check. It bears no relation as to what you're going to play at 2 o'clock this afternoon on camera for the director, nor what you're going to play at 5.30 on Saturday on our hour sound check, nor dress rehearsal, nor air. This is a template. It's basically like you have the console and you color in the answer key and then you just place it down over the board. And we always listen to the console. We never listen through Pro Tools because if Pro Tools cacks, you're off the air. If I was listening through Pro Tools. But it just also goes back to the question of time because, as I say, we do the sound check, getting sounds together on Thursday. Then from like 11.30 to 1, we're working with the band, getting it all together. Hopefully they take a break from one to two. Then two to three is camera blocking, two or 245. The director looks at each one twice. That's also recorded. They can come back and tweak and deal if they want. And then at 5.30 on Saturday, there's a full hour for the band to work, get comfy, and we record that, and we record dress rehearsal. So by the time it gets on the air, this thing has been under my fingertips a lot. On Fridays, I will either be working on other stuff for other sketches, or I may not have a lot to do. In which case, if I feel I want to spend some time on it, I'll put up the stuff, the recording from the day before. Okay, let me really get into the EQ on these background vocals. And let me see if I can tighten up these gates on the drums a little more, and so forth. And you'll futz with it. But you have the luxury of time that a lot of other shows don't. This model of doing the recording beforehand and playing around and then when you do it, The Tonight Show does it, Seth Meyers does it. Um, and they also do them with separate music rooms like we have. A long time ago, the A1 mixer also dealt with music. Even the Today Show was split out. It used to be years ago, Katie, Matt, Beirut remote, kick drum, Al, you know, Washington DC remote, snare, you know, wherever you can put it on the console. But now there are separate rooms for this. And of course, the Pro Tools allows you to do that. I worked on The View once or twice and did that where 
just to have the luxury of playing it back and tweaking something in. It's great. That's very cool. Well, I think the, you know, the lesson about the, the expertise that you build over time, the way to sort of problem solve and troubleshoot while the plane's in the air to use, to borrow your analogy, it's just, you know, that's, that's the kind of stuff that we try to encourage our listeners and our tribe to get better at is, you know, especially during this time, we've had a couple of months to really focus on leveling up in our skill. So now when we go back to gathering live and have to sort of be in the hot seat again, you know, there, there are really good, good ways that we've kind of encouraged people to rely on that expertise and to, you know, to really, as you said, when you're, when you're having to pull up and, you know, get the plane back up in the air, um, to have the confidence to know I've got this and I, I can pull this off. And the other thing that's really important is to be able to say, you know what? I don't know why X, Y, or Z isn't working. I don't know what the issue is here, but I do know the person who can probably help me out or talk me through it. And there's no shame and there's no crime in doing that. And I've told, I go down to the Peabody Conservatory fairly often, which is part of Hopkins, and I'll do these little, I'll bring down SNL multi-track material and we'll demo some of that, or I will, we'll get a small band together, like a fusion jazz band, and I'll record that, work with the students on doing studio stuff. And it's like, you know, if, if you, what you need to be able to do is troubleshoot it to the base, best of your ability, um, calm down, sip on your juice box, and then call or get the person on the phone or whatnot and just say, hey, I'm having this issue here. I've, I've never had a problem with someone calling me up. Uh, and I think a lot of engineers are sort of like a cat. If you do this to them, they'll just like, yeah, what do you want? That is, <laughs> I... People say, can someone talk to you? Can they get some advice? Absolutely. It's it's not a secret. This podcast thing I know is going to be somewhat, it is not visual, but I always tell people like this little distance here, this is right and this is wrong. Everything else is personal opinion and personal taste. There are certain things that you do that, yeah, you want to hear the vocal. You don't want it swimming in reverb. You want to hear certain things balanced out. You want to make sure you hear the bass. If I don't hear bass on TV, I go, mad. To me, that's like amateur hour. But, you know, if I can hear synth, like ride cymbal and bass and kick drum, if that, it doesn't have to be the best ocarina zither or moose call sound ever put forth. But if it is naturally sort of balanced, if you hear the spread of it, and I've worked with guys who will spend half an hour futzing with the filters on the returns of the reverb. I'm like, what are you doing? This has nothing whatsoever to do with the music. And you want people to feel relaxed and happy. And when people hear it back and they like it, or if they know they weren't waiting on you, if it's like, are we ready? Well, no, audience, you know, they should never be waiting on you. Never be waiting on you. 
show up early, get that stuff checked out. Um, and even little things like mic, this, you know, someone goes, hello, test one, two, hey, next mic, next mic. And it's like, no, you go, ocarina, ocarina, zither, 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 you know, so I know what it is. Little things like that. The better you get, the more curmudgeonly you get. <laughs> there are times I feel like the only thing I have to do at this point in my life is to buy a house in the suburbs so I could legitimately yell at people to get off my damn lawn. You know, it's gotten to that point in life. Well, you may feel like that way, but right now, as we speak, my neighbor has crashed his bobcat into my fence beside my swimming pool. <laughs> oh my gosh. Suburb problems. <laughs> this so, was as we were talking? Right now, it's happening. My wife's texting me, and I hear it out there, and my fence cracking. Oh my gosh. Bobcat is a, like a... It's like a uh, little excavator. Like the the little one with the uh, the army tank wheels. And why does he need one? He's building a swimming pool in his backyard. He's a contractor. I see. Well, yeah. Suburb problems. Well, I feel like we could talk for days and just listen to stories and glean from your wealth of wisdom, but we do have to wrap up at some point. So um, I just I can't thank you enough for lending us your time today and oh, my pleasure just giving us such good advice it's it's an honor uh, honestly to have you here because lee and i had such a great experience when we were there in person and i love that our uh, our little tribe of engineers can glean from your experience just a little bit so uh whenever whatever lifts around here grace standing invite to come up and show Thank you so much, Josiah. I'd love also to check out what you're doing down at Peabody. I'm sure the students there are just overjoyed to have you as part of their network. Thanks, Josiah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that was cool. Yeah, that conversation with Josiah was just amazing. His longtime standing with SNL is testament to how our relationships define our career. Yeah, totally. I love I love what he said about just focusing on what actually matters and not getting bogged down in the stuff that is either just opinion or preference or a matter of taste. I think when we focus on the essentials, you know, that's how we get the kind of long-term credibility and reputation and influence that a guy like him has. I think it's it was great. So much from his conversation that that we can all learn from. It's very cool. Absolutely. I don't know about you, but I will not be watching SNL the same way ever again. It's funny because when we came back from our visit there, uh, we, we met with him on a Friday. So when he was talking about how on Fridays, he'll sometimes go back and tweak the mix from Soundcheck on Thursday. That's what he was doing when we were there. And then I watched the show the next night and having heard it in the studio and then hearing it on TV with that perspective of where it had started and where it came from and where it ended up in the broadcast. It was fascinating. So I'm a huge fan. He's a great guy. Well, that wraps up another episode of the MXU podcast. Thanks for being a part of what we're doing. Grace, can't thank you enough for being in the conversation. Um, Congratulations on your wedding. For those of you who didn't know, Grace got married and we're really excited. and we were supposed to see you next week live and in person, but since all that stuff has been postponed, we're just going to have to keep connecting online and on social. For those of you who don't know, we've added a bunch of lighting videos to MXU Now, 
So to find out more about that, just go to mxu.rocks and sign up today. Meanwhile, we'll keep putting stuff out there and hopefully connect with you all soon in person. But until then, um, we'll see you on the interwebs. Have a great day. Bye, Grace. Oh, thank you so much.